0: Show you a better way Hi folks this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival podcast As always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. today is Thursday, February the 9th 2017 and as Thursday it is time for the listener call show. This is where I answer your calls to the think line that's 866. 866- 65THINK 866 65THINK. If you want to get your call on a show like this, this is how to do it. Dial those numbers 866 65THINK and say, Jack, my name is, calling from blank, right? And if you don't want to give that away, make some crap up. Say you're John calling from Jehoshaphatville. But if if your call is uh, is something that might be affected by climate, give me your actual area, right? No one's going to know you're John from Pennsylvania, know who the hell that is. All right, so you say that, my name is John, I'm calling from Pennsylvania. My question is question or my point is point or my statement is statement one to two sentences maximum then give me the details it will make it more likely that you'll get through the screening process and you'll end up on a show like this i'm just trying to help you help help me help you okay uh and and I, i'm not being a jerk about this this procedure just works we've been doing it for oh god almost eight years now that we, since we did our first call and shows and it works the best, and just trust me and follow that formula. And the, again, the other thing is, you're on a cell phone. Look at the bars. If you don't see a couple, three bars on there, uh, go somewhere else before you make your call. Stay away from loud things when you're making your call as well. What are we going to talk about today? Well, i got a bunch of calls on the docket for you today. We're going to have uh, not only a question, but some feedback on the career of being a pipe fitter from someone that has observed this, uh, following up with a person that had a question last week asking whether to go to work uh, in Amazon, in the automation field, or in pipe fitting. Uh, and I have some thoughts on the parts of it that sound good that might not be as well. Uh, I have a question on how to fish a new body of water for the first time, which is cool because the last two days I fished new bodies of water for the first time. Uh, so I can give you some thoughts on that. Establishing an orchard as far as finding support species for it, nitrogen fixers. We have balancing personal brand and personal privacy, something I do know a little bit about for those of you building online brands. Uh, how automation might drive out individual skill sets. If you don't know what I mean, it'll make sense when you hear the question. And how to make modern gas cans not suck. got a question from a guy that says he likes my gas rotation thing, but what the heck do you do to make gas cans not suck? Well, I'll tell you how to do that. I have some uh, thoughts on uh, Betsy DeVos, the Secretary of the Education, and a bill introduced to abolish the Department of Education. And uh, a question on gardens, drip irrigation, and home resale considerations. Good diverse topics today. We'll get to all that in just a minute. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day, guys. Right now, do you know I have personally about a hundred trees, vines, and bushes from Bob Wells Nursery on my property? Over time, they will produce season after season of edible products. They look great too. Bob Wells is always my first choice when buying new trees, vines, and shrubs for my permaculture work. Check them out at BobWellsNursery.com today. One of my favorite people I get to work with at TSP is Chef Keith Snow of HarvestEating.com. Chef Keith can teach you to cook fantastic meals, develop a great food storage program, and more. He is also the source of my favorite line of spices and seasoning mixes that I use in all my weekly cooking. Check out his products, great blog, and podcast at HarvestEating.com. And the TSP Business Directory supporter of the day is none other than the Regenerative Agriculture Facebook group, a group that I actually co-founded. And it's interesting that popped up today because we are making a big push at the Regen Ag group today to get us to the 20,000-member mark. The group's a bit over a year old. It started out with about a dozen of us on Facebook. That were completely fed up with every single group about permaculture, regenerative agriculture, organic gardening, no matter what it was, devolving into discussions about social justice and global warming and politics and all kinds of crap instead of actually planning food, getting stuff done, uh, the, the things that people actually would be in a group like that to discuss, you know, how to actually grow food, how to actually be self-sufficient, how to uh, start up a farm or a farmstead or just a homestead. These are the things that we're lacking in these other groups, or whenever you got on a decent discussion about they always got derailed, derailed by politics. So we said, yay, hey, we'll set this group up. It'll do nothing but get shit done from an agricultural and re- regenerative agricultural uh, standpoint, and uh, we'll see how it goes. And we're almost at 20,000 members. If you're not a member, come join us today. You can get there just by going to regen.ag, R-E-G-E-N dot And with that, this is where we usually take a look at the history segment. Alex Shrugged is out of commission for a bit. Uh, I got an email from his wife yesterday saying he's actually in the hospital, though it's not life-threatening. It is an out-of-commission thing. That's all the details I have, and I wouldn't give more if I had them because Alex is really a a pretty private guy. Uh, But he should be back sometime in the future. Uh, For a while, though, the uh, history segment will be on hiatus. I I cannot do what Alex does. I I just can't. (laughs) Uh, But I did want to at least maybe throw something at you from the year 1949 today, other than the song of the day at the end. What did things cost in nineteen forty nine might be an interesting thing to look at and really easy to find. A brand new car averaged sixteen hundred and fifty dollars. Gasoline was twenty six cents a gallon. The average house was fourteen thousand five hundred dollars. You could buy bread for fourteen cents a loaf. Milk was eighty-four cents a gallon. A post stamp a postage stamp was about three cents. The Dow Jones industrial average was about two hundred and uh, I found some other things that were interesting. Diner food, a hamburger was $0.20, cents, a hot dog was $0.20, cents, a pie was $0.15 cents for shoving it in your pie hole. You get a piece of cake for $0.20, cents, cold drinks for $0.10, cents, and coffee was a nickel, uh, an average diner in America today, uh, in 1949. But here's the other side of it. The average annual salary was 3600 bucks, and minimum wage was $0.40 cents per hour. And uh, I, I, I thought one interesting thing to look at, because we get nostalgic, was what was the average salary compared to minimum wage um so you take 40 cents an hour times 40 hours right and then you multiply that by 52 and you get what would you make for a year on minimum wage about 832 bucks and then you divide 3600 the average salary by minimum wage and minimum wage was uh, or the average wage was about 4.3 times higher than minimum wage Getting the numbers for today was difficult because, see, the Bureau of Labor Statistics has pulled a funny thing on us. Uh, what they have done is they have stopped you know really being very clear about what the average individual one person makes, and they like to report everything as household income. Well, in 1949, most households were one-income households, and today they are two. And then I'm really not sure which number to use. Do you use everybody that's employed or people that are over 18 and employed, uh, what have you? But... When I decided to choose everybody that's employed in, in America today uh, and get an average salary, today people make on, uh, an average salary is about 2.6 times minimum wage. So we've gone from a point where a person made about four times, four point three times minimum wage, to about two point six times minimum wage as an average employee. Now I think highly compensated employees, there's more of them today, which might actually drive the median down a little bit, if in reality, not not in, in the number. Um, but it's almost a doubling, or almost a cutting in half, and it makes you understand really quickly how a household could be supported by a single wage earner in 49, but not so much in 2016, 2017. Just something to think about. On the other hand, I want to say something that, you know, sometimes we get a little overly nostalgic and think things were always that better. Um, I think, by and large, if you have a decent-paying job today, that financially you're better off than you would have been in 1949 with a similar job at a similar level in society. Because by and large, things actually do cost less relative to income today. But if we take a look at this little snapshot around 1960, we may find that not so much to be true anymore. Remember, the big post-war boom had not really kicked off. The highway construction of the 50s, Eisenhower, etc., had not really started yet in 1949. So I'm sure that's nothing like Alex Shrug could have gave you, but it's what I can give you, and we at least took a look at the year that was the episode. All right, folks, I want to remind you one more time about the Members Support Brigade. That's the way you can help support this show by becoming a member of our MSB. So go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. But I want to give you six of the more than 60 discounts we get today. All of these pertain to growing your own food. Marsh Creek Farmstead can give you discounts on the Earpan and Comfrey Cuttings. Bob Wells Nursery gives you 10% off all of their offerings, bushes, trees, shrubs, and vines that grow food in your own backyard. And then we have four great seed companies that all do really great discounts for you any seeds terroir seeds the victory seed company and high mowing seeds if you take advantage of those with your homesteading activities throughout the year those alone will probably pay for your membership and hey you know what there's still over 60 more companies offering discounts on things you're probably buying anyway so get by the survivalpodcast.com today click on members to learn more and sign up and if you've let your membership last lapse remember now would be a great time to come on back to the survival podcast msb all right, with that, let's go ahead and take that first call of the day.
1: Hey, Jack, this is Dylan, Angus Bangus on the forums down in Mississippi, uh, calling in response to the guy who was looking whether to go to a pipe fitter or a tech job. Uh, I was just going to say, look, you know, pipe fitters are very high demand out in, in at least my industry in, in very industrialized things. Um, you know, it's important to have welding. Uh, the more welding skills you have, the better and the higher paying jobs you can get, and it's, uh, there's easier to do, like, side jobs. Uh, you know, the craft I work with actually make a significant amount of their money from per diem, which is tax-free. So they're out on the road working away from home and getting $150 a day tax-free. Uh, in the nuclear industry where I work, you know, many of the craft, whether they're pipe fitters or boiler makers or electricians, i techs, carpenters, whatever, they'll, they just work spring and fall outages. So they'll work about six months out of the year. But when they're working, they're working seven days a week, 12 hours a day, working hard. Uh, then they take off basically during the summer and the winter. So they they hunt all winter and fish all summer. During the spring the fall they hit the road and uh and they work hard. And you know, looking back I sometimes wish that I'd gone that direction instead of being a manager. Uh you know, those folks work really hard but they live more free when they can and uh and they do pretty well for themselves. You know, the maintenance of our infrastructure is isn't really repeatable um, and so it makes it really difficult to automate, not impossible but difficult. Uh so I think it's got a long lead on it. Um, you know, we're frequently short of really quality craft. We're always looking for, for good craft. Uh, and as a customer of those crafts, I really hope that more people, you know, choose the, the trade route, uh, keeping the lights on tough without welders and carpenters. So if they're more entrepreneurial, you know, there's a lot of guys out there who have started their own company uh, that with a group of tradesmen, and, and they go around the country, uh, you know, making money from uh, utilities and other big industries like oil and gas because uh, there's some things uh, it's very difficult to send a robot in to do. Anyway, thanks for all you do, man. Take it easy.
0: Well, I, I played that because, well, I just don't know that much about pipe fitting, and we had a person asking about it as a career path, and I think it's good for a lot of folks out there. We do have some you know younger listeners or career transition folks out there trying to figure out, well, what to do next with their life. I, I just want to temper the whole, well, they work really hard, and they travel for you know half the year, and then they're off for half the year with the reality of travel. Uh, I traveled for a living for, uh, the better part, I guess, of my, of my, uh, traditional career life. By the time you guys got to know me with TSP, I was working with Neil Franklin. I was a partner in several of his companies. And uh, I was traveling a lot, but it was daily back and forth, uh, about two hours to three hours a day in the car, which of course led me to create this show. Prior to that, uh, my career was in sales and was in technology, so I went from the technical application to the technical sales world, and the majority of that time I spent traveling, and I just want to tell you, it gets old. It gets really old, and unlike a lot of these guys that are doing pipe-fitting jobs and are working 12, 14-hour days while I was putting in a lot of hours A lot of it was the kind of work that you don't really think of as work. Taking people out for entertainment. I had a big expense budget. You know, I was living a life a lot of people would really like to live, and that wore me out. When I first started in the technical industry, my first job was working for MCI. And, yeah, MCI. I don't know if they even exist anymore. Uh, But it was working in their long-distance terminals uh, doing installations and maintenance and we would work a lot of weeks where we would work five days a week, and we would work from 7 at night to 7 in the morning, 60 hours. Uh, and, and that wore me out. That wore me out more than the sales stuff did, for sure. And so I would just caution anybody that's thinking of embarking on a career that involves that much road travel. And I didn't realize that pipe fitting would, but it makes sense because you got to go where the work is, um, that – it sounds good, and for some people, it's a great life. I knew guys back when I worked for MCI that that's all they did. They took whatever job paid the best in their situation. They made most of their money in per DM, just like the caller said, and uh, they'd been doing it 30 years. And they didn't ever want to do anything else, and they they would work six to nine months out of the year, and when there wasn't work or there wasn't good paying work, they just kind of sort of laid themselves off. Uh, and a lot of them were in situations where they could kind of do that and still collect unemployment. And, uh, you know, that's that's the case with a lot of these industrial-type travel jobs as well. There's no job for you, therefore you don't have work, and therefore you're unemployed, and therefore you go on unemployment. I'm not a big fan of living off government money, but I look at unemployment as getting your own money back because they take money from you to fund unemployment. Um, and, and pipe fitting may be a bit stable with that because I also knew people like that in Pennsylvania who worked for instance I had an uncle that worked for a company called Stanine as in Staninine sinks and he sprayed undercoating coating on sinks well they would always have a, a, a lull in winter and he would always get laid off and he kind of looked at it as like vacation and he would usually have like a really small lull midsummer and he'd go fishing you know for 3 or 4 weeks in the summer and uh, I don't think that plant's even there anymore. So those kinds of things don't always last. But it sounds like this is a legitimate long-term um, thing as far as, as career path, uh, not so displaceable by automation, which was my instinct when I originally a- answered the question. And it's the lack of repeatability. So if you're looking for a career path that is less likely to be affected by automation, it will be the things that aren't completely repeatable. Uh, in other words, when an electrician wires a building, the pathways and spaces are not going to be the same from building A to building B. And it's not such an easy thing for a robot to do, to put conduit in and then cable. So I think those types of career trades are the ones with some legs left in them. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and take another call.
2: Hey, Jack, this is Scott in Texas. I have a fishing question. I'm just wondering, how do you approach a body of water that you don't really know anything about. There's a tank near where I work that I wanted to try fishing. I have no idea what kind of fish are in there. I would have no idea where where to even start uh, with different types of techniques of fishing and lures and whatnot. So I was just wondering if you had to have any advice on that. Appreciate it. Thanks. Bye.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it it varies on, you know, seasonality and geography and, and what have you. Texas, we're in our our, our some winter right now, we call it. So I I call it some winter, right? Because we get some winter, we get some winter, and it's summer, and then it's winter, so it's some winter. Um, And so it throws fish into weird patterns. Like one day they're really active and on because the water's warmed up, you know, 10 degrees. And even though that water is relatively cool for the species, it's a 10-degree swing warm, and you got high pressure, and you, you can just see the activity come up and you know then you get a cold front like we were 33 degrees today and i know a lot of you getting blizzards and shit but when you're when you're 78 degrees the day before and you're down to 33 that kind of puts the k on the fish activity for a little bit so that's yeah. something to consider you said a tank so here's the good news when you say tank in in texas you generally mean you know a stock tank which is like a small pond they're the easiest places to find fish Because there's only so much water, right? So if we, if we, you know, spend some time fishing a few different spots, we'll probably just happen into where the fish are in their pattern right now. So that's something to look forward to. Remember, fish always relate to structure. So the thing about most of the stock tanks is they're just a round pond. They generally are pretty uniform, like they kind of just go a a slanted depth from all sides. But if you look at a pond and you see like one side is, is clearly like a – instead of just a hole, it's a dam, and then the other side is is kind of sloped, then you know you're going to have water sloping from shallow to deep, and your deepest water is going to be in the back. It's it's not a terrible idea in these small bodies of water to figure out how deep things are, and, there's, and usually they're not that deep. Or, you know, you can at least figure out where things are up to about 8 feet. Really, really simple. And the way you do this is you get a bobber, just a regular float bobber, and you get a weight that's just heavy enough to pull that bobber underwater. And then you can take that bobber and set it maybe 8 feet deep or start out with like 4 feet deep, cast it out, and see if it sinks the bobber. And then you can reel that in a little bit, reel it in a little bit, reel it in, until the bobber just meets the surface. You yeah, know you have four feet of water right there. Right? So now we can drop it down to six feet and we can figure out where six feet of water is, we can figure out where eight feet of water. We can basically use like make the bobber into a depth finder on these small bodies of water. We can do that in creeks, we can do that in small bodies of water, we can even do that on bigger lakes if we really want to, just to figure out where a drop off is. So we, you know, we got four, we got two feet, four feet, four feet, five feet, five feet, five feet, six feet. BLOOM! Oh, there's a drop. There's a piece of structure that we normally wouldn't see. That's one way we can, we can sort things out. there's another thing, and this is gonna sound a little bit, uh, mystical or something like that, and it's not. It's just hard to put a finger on sometimes. If you start fishing a lot, You'll go to a body of water and you'll know a spot is probably a good spot to fish. Sometimes it's a real obvious thing, but sometimes it's very, very subtle. I, I remember a friend of mine back when I was a teenager used to get very frustrated whenever we would go fishing together. We used to fish the 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 the, the trout streams, you know, in the summer when everybody else had quit because uh, stocking was over. But we'd go fish the the back streams that you had to hike into for native trout and he would be fishing you know, ahead of me <laughs> to get ahead of me, and I'd be catching fish, and he'd be fishing an area that looked good, and he'd be casting, and casting using the same bait, the same rig, everything's the same, and, and he'd be there for, for 10 minutes, and I'd walk up and go, man, this is a great spot. How have you not caught anything? And I, he'd go, well, I haven't. See that little spot right back in there, cast back in there? And he'd cast three or four times, and just not quite to the spot I was talking about, and i go get out of the way, boom, and i drop it in, boom, and bam, I'd nail a fish. So part of it just comes with experience. And then you also have to understand that if you try a spot and it doesn't work out for you, don't give up on it. Don't give up on it because it may not just be a good day for the fish in that spot. For instance, I have my little tank, right, and my tank's small. I mean, if you put bait in my tank, it's near a fish. There's only so many room for fish to go. My little pond, uh, it, it's, God, it's probably 60 foot by 50 foot, if that, and uh, I went fishing yesterday, and I'll talk about how I worked that spot out in a second, but I came back home. My wife had to take the granddaughter back to the the, the our kids, and... Uh, I had like an hour to kill, so I thought, well, I'll go fish my own pond for a little bit and just see you know, how big the catfish are getting. I caught one, and, and I was lucky to catch it, they, and I threw pellets for them to eat, and they just weren't eating. There's over 200 catfish in that little pond, and there's about 100 uh, various sunfish, bluegill, brim, whatever you want to call them in there too. And I had a couple other little pecks, and they just weren't active, even though the fish at the creek that I went to were active that day. So give that another, you know, attempt. Now you say you don't have no idea what kind of fish are in there. Well, you won't until you fish. But if you're in Texas, then you know that in a freshwater pond like that, this is what you probably have: various sunfish, so you bluegill, green sunfish, things like that. You know that, there, that there's potential that you would have largemouth bass in there. You know there's not smallmouth bass in there because in this climate they never survive in that small body of water. It's too hot, too low of oxygen levels. There's potential for channel catfish, and there's a high probability of bullhead catfish, and there could be some, you know, minnows and other things like that. But that's 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 pretty much what's there. So then we can just target those species based on what they eat, and we can also understand that fish always eat what's in the water with them. So as you get later in the year, you start to notice minnows and things like that, just a dip net and some minnows, and you'll probably catch something on the minnows that swim in the water. Uh, if you're fishing for catfish using small blue brim perch whatever as bait, cut bait will probably work. Very small ones will probably work for bass and catfish if you use them live. So just on the live bait thing alone, we can do okay there. One of the ways just to see are there fish there is to target like the easy fish. The easy fish are what I've been targeting lately because I've been adding them to my aquaponic system, which are your sunfish or your 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 brim, your perch, whatever you call them, based on where you live in the country. And uh, the dynamite number, one way to get those is a small piece of worm on a small hook with a float. And, you know, you fish different areas and see if you get any activity on them. And if you do, great. And if you don't, go a little deeper, go a little shallower. Maybe go ahead and do some depth finding, like I said. Look for any structure, especially small tanks, small ponds. They generally don't have a lot of structure. So if there's a log in the water, if there's a weed line, if there's some sort of a point... It's going to hold fish because there's so little structure in those. So the two places I've tried recently, and there's videos I put out today um, in addition to a video that some modification we made to the aquatic system. The uh, first one was a city park, probably about two-and-a-half-acre pond, really nice fishing pier on it. Made out of, I've never seen one before, like this kind of half-round concrete, like picnic area, like a pavilion. And uh, honestly, the area I fished most in it was because it was windy, and it went with the wind, so it didn't jack with my line. And it probably wasn't the best part of the pond, but I think I brought home like seven or eight fairly large bluegill sunfish, different types of sunfish. And uh, I was actually looking for bullhead catfish and fishing with hot dogs on the bottom and from a float, and uh, real quickly determined that the bottom was very, very grassy and very, very mucky, and so it went to a float. It was much more effective with that. Also was able to catch some of the the, the perch, Along the concrete pavilion edge, because obviously the fish relate to edges. Then yesterday I went to a creek. It's the same creek I posted a video of that I just, you know, I found by looking on Google Earth. And it's a pretty nice hole. And there's um, kind of a swooping curve where this hole is. And the far end of your bend is always going to be where your deep cutouts are. Most of the fish were hanging right in there. And I tried a bunch of different things. I tried hot dogs looking for bullhead catfish again. I think it's just too early in the year for them. And there were so many sunfish in this place that it was, it was ridiculous. Like you couldn't get away from them. So finally I just went to a float and a number 10 bait holder and a piece of worm. And I think I brought 21 of those home to the tank yesterday. So hopefully that helped you kind of get your mind around this. If you're, if there's bass in there, you know, rubber worms or gitzits is another lure that almost always are effective on largemouth bass, but what i found in small tanks and all is that the water gets warmer and you can actually spot fish, you can spot largemouth bass, like a number four or number two uh, bait holder hook and a night crawler, and you hook the night crawler just through the, the collar, and you know what you look at when you know what the collar is. Just right through that collar, good solid hook, but don't double them over because uh, bass are going to take a worm in. And get the sun angles right so you're not casting a shadow or a reflection ahead of you Wear some polarized glasses and walk those tanks and look for those bats. You usually see them cruising weed lines and stuff like that. Cast really gently out in front of them and maybe jig the worm a little bit toward them. And if they start to, like, coming toward it like they're going to investigate it, just stop and let that worm just start sinking. And it's something about when it sinks like that, usually they just hammer it. And, and I've found small tanks and all with largemouth bass, where people say, I've thrown every lure there is. I can't get a single one. And just a, 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 a box of worms, and, and you can nail them left and right. The big thing is you're going to only find out what works by just trying things and figuring out what works. But those are some starting points. And, and again, I want to encourage you guys that are out there that think, I don't have a place to fish, start looking around, man. I, I, I've picked up another place today. That's um, I think it's actually the same creek that I was on yesterday, but it's further north of it, and it looks almost like a pond. and It looks awesome, and it's 16 minutes from my house. Um, it's on highway easement, so you could basically pull off the side of the road and walk down to it, and even though there might be private property on both sides, that area, that highway easement, in most places and areas, is going to be publicly accessible because it's highway easement, and it looks like a fantastic place to fish from the air. I might get there, and it might suck. Try that trick. Just get on Google Maps, stay in the map view, because it really highlights where bodies of water are, kind of drill down on them, and then switch to satellite view. And, and you know, I've found, let's see, one, two, three, four places in the last week, three of which I've already checked out, two of which I've already fished. I've caught fish in the two that I found. It, it, it works. And um, it, it's one of those ways to find places That aren't where every, because the two city parks that I found, I mean, on a Saturday in the summer, I'm sure there's like 500 kids there whipping shit all over the place, hooking you in the air and throwing giant bobbers around. But these little backwater creeks and stuff like that, you know, those are not heavily pressured. And sometimes they're some of the best fishing you can find. It's kind of a mini fishing show there, but uh, good question if you can't tell. I'm a bit excited to have the rod in the water again, uh, even if it's only uh, bluegill and perch. Let's take another one.
3: Hey, Jack. Uh, I have two questions regarding uh, establishment of uh, a fruit tree orchard and what supports species to plant. Uh, firstly, um, my first question is, do all legume plants fix nitrogen? I'd like to order from a local Department of Conservation nursery, um, and they don't have black locusts this year that I was planning on planting, but they do have the following plants listed as legumes. Uh, redbud trees, Kentucky coffee trees, Slender bush clover shrub and false indigo shrub. Will all these fix nitrogen? Secondly, uh, we are in eastern Missouri zone 5. We have about 30 fruit trees planted in single rows into berms of a swale system. All the trees are dwarfs and semi-dwarfs. And so would you recommend anything specific as support trees for this? Um, I'm guessing we'll need to plant about 150 trees by hand. And I'm a little concerned um, that whatever we plant may not be able to be phased out. Um, so are there any concerns for shrubs, uh, especially shrubs that reseed themselves? Um, and I'm not opposed to looking to outside nurseries, and any thoughts on this topic would be appreciated. Thanks for everything you do. Bye-bye.
0: So I'm going to start out with something you may not want to hear. I'm not in love with the idea of planting dwarf trees. Um, and if you've got... What did you say? if you got thirty of them planted, I think is what you said, unless you're planting more, I don't know that you need to put hundred and fifty support trees in in a climate and a soil a good soil area like Missouri, um, especially with soils. You can, but maybe you don't need that many as far as if you want locust trees, if you just that's what you want. Uh, Coldstream Farm still has them in stock. I have a link in the show notes today. If I were you, I'd get them fast when I post things like this. They, and they're already late in the year. So, uh, where they start to sell out of stuff, but you can get a, a hundred six to twelve inch, uh, black locusts for 71 cents. You can get a hundred one to two foot black locusts for 93 cents. Uh, it, this is per tree and you can get a hundred two to three footers for a buck and a quarter a piece. Um, they do fix nitrogen. Do all leguminous trees fix nitrogen? The answer is debatable, but I'm going to tell you specifically with Eastern Redbud, um, scientifically it appears no. Uh, now, I've heard a lot of people say, well, I believe that they do. Okay, well, I have a an issue with that because your belief doesn't change biology. So the other ones you mentioned I'm not really sure of. Black locust does fix nitrogen, period, the end, infinity. There's scientific evidence, and you can see the little nodules on the roots. Um, so if you want a no-nitrogen fixer, absolutely black locust does. It used to be Coldstream sold autumn olive seedlings, and I love autumn olive, and I think for a support species with dwarf and semi-dwarf, which I'm much more happy with the semi-dwarf thing than a dwarf thing, trees, uh, they're a great... They're a great plant because they're easily pruned. Yes, they're invasive. I don't give a shit. They have already invaded. You, that, that that ship is gone. Don't worry about it. They're inedible. Uh, they're a great nitrogen fixer, and they are kind of an open, bushy, tree-ish shrub. So when you prune them, they let plenty of light through to your fruit trees. You get a lot of material for drop and drop, and they absolutely are a nitrogen fixer. Another shrub, thorny. But is a really high-value plant that's a good nitrogen fixer um, is sea berry or, or sea buckthorn, and uh, that is the, that stuff. I mean, I've seen the I, I can't get it to grow here. It's just not a very uh, sea buckthorn-friendly environment. But yours should be fine for it. And I've seen the roots of that stuff just gnarly with nodules. So those are some things you could consider. Uh, If you're worried about atrophying them out, if you cut something long enough, it will give up the ghost and go. Black locust, though, is a little bit more hardy. Hence, the black locusts I've planted here are not really designed to be atrophied out. They are planted, you know, more of a, there's a fruit tree, there's a locust tree, there's a fruit tree, there's a locust tree. I gave up on the whole seven to nine to one ratio you hear from Jeff Lawton. Remember, he's doing most of his work in the tropics and subtropics where the soils are very, very fragile and they have a huge need to build up that root mass to get anywhere. You're in Missouri. You don't have anywhere near as much of that. Um, Nick Ferguson told me once that he spoke to an old-timer that had been doing this kind of stuff forever, uh, I think it was a friend of his grandfather's, and uh, he asked, he said, well, does this tree fix nitrogen? And I think it might have been redbud. And what the guy said was, they all fix nitrogen. And Nick's like, you mean all the legumes? He says, no, all trees. Because of symbiotic relationships with fungi, one way or another, there's nitrogen going in the soil, even if it's just from dropping leaves and then you're good fungal activity, breaking down that detris, you're going to have a nitrogen yield. Stop worrying so much. And I think there's there's a place for that as well. Personally, I think one of the best things that you can be doing right now is developing a a kind of a turf grass and clover cover uh, for all the bare ground and going with various different types of clovers and then deep, tap-rooted biannuals like chicory to get more just a healthy soil going on and don't stress so much over you know everything being ratioed permaculturist nitrogen fixing stuff Um, you can certainly also seed things on an annual basis like cowpea and if you inoculate that stuff it will produce lots of nitrogen yield for you it'll get in there and grow with the chicory etc you may have to prune some of it off your trees it'll climb up your trees I've actually found it beneficial, though, because it shields in our harsh summers. And even though you have much colder winters, you do have pretty harsh summers, too. It shields the trunk of the tree. So what I'll do is I'll let it get up to where it's starting to get up into the branches of the tree, and then I'll just cut it off. And as it starts to come back, I just cut it off. And I just keep doing that and throwing it to the ground. Or if it's wrapped in the tree, I just let it sit there. It it, you know breaks down, and, and the tree takes care of it from there. So those are some other ways that you can look at this. I would tell you this, think hard before you put black locust on your property. It's one of the harder trees to make go away. And and hence, when I use it in a design, I don't use it in in a a lot in style where if we're just going to keep cutting it, eventually it's going to die and will success into productive trees. I put it in as a long-term support species. I put it in on the back of my swales where the sun hits from the west and bakes the back of them, put in a whole line of them every three feet. And hopefully in time as they get up, and they did really good last year, they'll actually shade the back of the tree from the western sun uh, so that we don't dry out as fast. So I I think about things more that way. So this is what I'm going to tell you. If the ground's covered and it's not all grass, and the grass is not growing up onto the trunks of your trees, if you keep that growth back from the trunks of your trees a bit so it doesn't choke out your trees... By whatever means you use it, whether it's mechanical, uh, whether it's by using some sort of a weed block, mulching, whatever, um, but you keep the ground basically growing with a variety of different things and interplant some nitrogen-fixing shrubs like autumn olive sea berry, and possibly some use of plants like black locust. you're not going to have any problems. And you don't need to go way overboard with the numbers. You really don't. You can pull them back. Uh, we've seen it work time and time again. Uh, let's take another one.
4: Hey Jack, this is Chris from Note and I I had a question about your online personal brand and privacy. So, I was thinking since since you've been super famous as Jack Sparrow, how how has your personal privacy changed? Because I'm trying to I'm trying to grow a blog, and I was wondering if a quite like a quiet guy like myself should even be in this kind of business just because of the publicity that may come with it. I mean, I can be very engaged with other like-minded people, but otherwise I'm really, I really like my privacy. I was wondering if you could share some of your wisdom you gained from experience. Um, thanks so much for all you do. Uh, I've been listening Thank you, you grew your Google beds in Arkansas, and hey, if you are ever doing any work with Jack Weekends, please let us you know. would be super excited to do that. Thanks. Bye.
0: So let's 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 get some reality here about the the celebrity that you are. If you build a podcast like I have to 150,000 uh, members, there was a, a celebrity, true celebrity, which I don't consider myself, named Kathy Griffith. She was on some kind of sitcom, uh, I think with Brooke Shields, and uh, I think her character's name on there was uh, Vicky, uh, redheaded chipper gal, and. Uh, she had a reality show after that called My Life on the D List, and she considered herself a D list celebrity. And uh, so, you know, a Brad Pitt would be an A list celebrity. You know, someone that you, uh, there's an entourage following them all the time. There's paparazzi following them all the time. Everybody, if, if you if somebody sees you, they know who you are. You know, and a, a D list celebrity like is a legitimate celebrity, but a lot of times nobody cares. No, and there's there's might be. A, occasional person with a camera chasing you, but not everywhere you go to the cameras show up. You don't end up on that hollywood E, whatever the hell it is, all the time or anything. People don't really care, but yet they know who you are. That would be a D-list celebrity like Kathy. They can still get work. Uh, She still had a a personal assistant for things. Uh, She still had a lot of functions and things that she went to, but it's not as glamorous as you would think. And that was the point of the show, and it was... Not something I watched a lot, but I, I got the gist of it from that. Okay, a, a podcaster with 150,000 listeners is not a D-list celebrity. They're not an E-list celebrity. <laughs> They're not an F. They're probably somewhere around like an N or an O. So when I go out and about, it is not that common that somebody goes, I know who you are. You're Jack Spirico. It does happen. If you go to an event that you help drive people to, that you've been billed at, and then you meet somebody like me at those, you think, this guy's got it going on, like everybody's all around him all the time. That's not normal. That's not typical. That's because you're in a place where everybody does know you. That's, that's like the, a glimpse at what being a celebrity is like, and I don't want to be one. I don't mind it. And if you come to an event that I'm at or something like that, don't shy away. No, you know, don't, you're busy. Well, that's why I'm there. I'm here to meet you and talk to you. That's why I do these things. And I don't mind it, you know, to be at a place like that for three or four days and, and, and be the guy that has to talk to some, I love it. People come here because I'm doing a good thing for my brand and I'm doing a good thing for the show and I'm, I'm doing the right thing for the people that support me, which is spend time with them. But I just want to get it through to you that it's not like that. There are times I'll be at a grocery store and somebody, like, oh, I know who you are, whatever, and it's it's kind of cool uh, because it's one on one and you know and and there are times where you have to be like, listen, I'm I, I, I'm happy to meet you, um, but I'm I'm on a mission today. I got to get this done. My wife and I have a date tonight, whatever it is, I and mean, you got to cut it short. But it's it's not that often and it's not that inconvenient. Um, and if no one paid attention, then you'd have a problem. Uh, I've been places where people have recognized my voice, not me. Um, and that's, you know, it, it, it does come up. But you gotta build quite a bit before you even have that issue. So, I, I, well, my point is, I wouldn't really worry about it that much. There is kind of a, it's actually online where people have a less respect for your personal space. So, what I mean by that is, I'll get a lot of shit from people sometimes because it's something I post on my personal Facebook page. And my response is, you know, your show is supposed to be this. I'm like, let me tell you something. First of all, you don't tell me what my show is supposed to be. Second of all, this is my personal freaking page, and I was nice enough to accept your friend request, which I don't do that often, okay? So this is my personal space, and over here in our groups and on my my, my TSP dedicated page, that's the stuff that's about the show. This is just whatever the hell I feel like doing. This is a picture of my granddaughter. If you don't like it, piss off. And it's funny that people think they're entitled to interfere with even that personal space. And honestly, if I had it to do over again in my personal space, I probably wouldn't have let as many people in as I did. You know, in the beginning, I was just happy to have people paying attention to me, and every friend request, accept, 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 and uh, and that made it kind of convoluted. And I went more toward the you know the the professional page and all. So there could be a little of that. But I'll tell you that the rewards are far better than any of the the costs. And if you want to build something, there's no more powerful way to build something today, in my opinion, for the small person than with personal branding. Now there are people that do it other ways. There's people that do it with a pseudonym. You know, Joe, nobody is not the guy's real name. And that does work. Um, You know, Right right here within our own community, uh, our mod from the forum wrote the the 299 Days book series and uh, goes by the the author's name of Glenn Tate, and... uh, that's not his real name. I happen to know him personally as a friend, and that's not who he is. And he did it for reasons other than what you're saying, but it was a, you know a similar concern in that he's working as an attorney in government and didn't want to be known as this guy writing these prepper books, you know, saying, "Hey, the whole government sucks and could fall apart someday." Um, so you can do that. I'll tell you what, though, I think it's well, Marjorie Wildcraft is another example. that's not her real name um it is her and if you saw her you'd recognize her but that's not her real name that's a, a, a an online name so that uh it, you know her personal life is kept separate if you were going to do the fake name thing i would do it the way she she's done it more than the way these other guys have done it so joe nobody you nobody nobody knows what he looks like glenn tate unless you know who he really is nobody really knows what he looks like you've never seen their face and that makes them less real where Marjorie may be using a fake name because that lets her not be found by people she doesn't want to be found by. And there's some value to that. But yet you still know her face. She's still a personality that you're accustomed to. and And I think if I was going to use a fake name, that's how I would do it. However, I can tell you that the trust I have with this audience has a great deal to do with I am who I say I am. You can find me if you want to. Um, you can meet me if you want to meet me. And I will shake your hand. I will look at you. And if I disagree with you, I'll tell you to piss off in person, just like I will online. I think that buys credibility too. Makes some people not so happy, but I mean, you want the truth or do you want what you want to hear? And I think the most powerful personal brands out there are people that are who they say they are. And you can verify that they're who they say they are. And because of that, and the longer they build that brand, the more powerful the 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 recommendation, their endorsement, uh, their trust factor becomes. I would say that most of you out there, even some of you that listen to me in spite of the fact that you don't like me, when I tell you something's my opinion or I recommend something, even if you think I'm wrong, you don't think I'm deceiving you or lying you or doing it just to make a buck. And I, I don't think there's a better way to do that than by honest, personal brand of who you will, really are. Does it give some things up? Yeah, but not as much as you would think. It's not like there's a line of cars outside of my house every day, and I'm not that hard to find if, if people really want to. It's actually, now that we run an actual farm, it's very easy to find it because we have to tell our customers where we are. Um, and, and, you know, I get about two people a month that want to come by because they're in town or whatever and see the place. And most of the time I say yes, and sometimes I say no. I'm sorry. And sometimes I mean to say yes and don't get back to people. And, Roy, if you're listening, that's what happened last time, and I'm sorry, man. I just now, having this conversation, I realize I spaced on getting back to you. Um, so I wouldn't hesitate to do it, but you don't sound like you're as much of an extrovert as me. However, remember, who we are is who we intend to be and what we want to be. Because I'm a kid that grew up with Asperger's. And I just decided I didn't like being introverted, and I wanted to be extroverted, and I willed myself to do so. And my life is better for it. And I would say that to anybody out there, that if you think, well, I just, this is what I am. I'm, I took the personality test, and it says I'm a, 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 an, a an INTJ or whatever. You, you can be whatever the hell you want to be. There uh, there's certain inherent personality things that will remain true and be difficult to change, but if you want to be more outgoing, you can if you want better communication skills, you can develop them. If you want to be able to play an instrument, even if you're like me and you suck and you have no rhythm, if that's what you want, you can you can will yourself to learn. So choose what you want and go create it. That's that's the best advice I can give you there.
2: Hi, Jack. David from Indiana. I sent you an email earlier today about uh, automation and driverless cars, which is the point of the call. Um, the uh, The article deals with uh, automation and how it can actually uh, take away the skills um, of a driver or a pilot. And uh, I wanted to get your comments on that. If uh, if you have any thoughts on, on whether or not long-term automation could deteriorate your skill uh, if, you're, if you're a driver and you're required to take over the controls of the car. Anyway, if you could respond, that'd be nice. Thanks a lot. Bye.
0: Well, yeah, and let's just examine that. So, um, what percentage would you say of people under 30 today can drive a stick shift? I mean, seriously, it's just sticking with cars for a minute, right? So, I mean, there's a meme going around right now that's that kind of funny and picking on the millennials yet again, but it just shows a, a five-speed stick shift, and it says millennial anti-theft device. I don't have to worry about a millennial stealing my car if I've got a five-speed in it because they don't know how to drive it. And I'm sure there's people out there that are 15 years old, don't even have their license yet, grew up on a farm with an old truck, and can drive a three on a tree, let alone a four on the floor. And somebody just went a three on the tree. What the hell is that? And there's my there's my proof once again. You don't, I mean, come on. Most people that can drive a stick would have a hard time driving a stick shift if it was a column shift. They haven't been around for a long time. We should call them a three-on-a-tree because there's a three-speed column shift uh, transmission. So if, if that atrophies, and then I would have to admit this. I grew up driving stick shifts. I was a mechanic in the Army, drove all kinds of stick shifts, um, had a truck for a, a number of years that was a stick shift. I'll bet you if I get into, and I haven't driven one, though, for oh, God, eight years myself probably, If I get in one, I'm probably going to bump it along a couple times and have to get back in the rhythm with it. Well, what if I had to do that because the car just beeped for the first time in five years and I hadn't driven at all? It might be a little bit more. So definitely. And we can just look at history. Like, So how many people today uh, have the necessary skill set to saddle up and bridle up a horse, get on it and ride it somewhere? And I know there's people in this audience, you, you're horse people, but let's take it out of the dedicated horse people. Average man, average woman on the street, 99% probably, oh, I've been horseback, right? Oh, you mean that there was a perfectly trained horse that was designed for riders that don't know what the F they're doing, and a man got it all ready, and he gave you a little help up in the saddle, and you followed him through the woods? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about being able to go a typical average rideable horse, get it ready and go, go go to town on it. Well, the average person could do that in 1880 because no one had a car. So the, the very fact that a new technology makes something easier makes whatever way we used to do it less practiced and therefore atrophies the skill set. How many people do you think could work a plow today? I mean, an old school two mules... And uh, you'd stand behind it, walk behind, plow. Even if you showed them how it worked. There's a learning curve. Most rural people could run a plow in 1880, 1870, because you needed to know how to do it. Most, most young kids could. Or, you know, at, at 1880s era, 1900 era, before it was, you know, automated with a vehicle, horse pulled combine. Not even that hard. How many people can run a scythe today properly? Properly, And that lady everybody keeps posting on the Internet that's all bent over and going like hell with it, that's not the right way to run a scythe. It just isn't. I know everybody's impressed with it, but that's not how you know, you, you wear yourself out running a scythe like that. It's another example. Even people who know how to do it don't know how to do it right. So I, I think we could just start going through all types of technologies. How many people today know how to milk a cow? A lot of homesteaders do, but most people don't know how to milk a cow or milk a goat. 1800s. Everybody knew how to do it. Most people knew how to do it anyway. Average person that would live in a place where they wouldn't have everything taken care of for them, the non-wealthy of the time would have known how to do that stuff. Let's talk even more modern stuff. I'm in my mid-40s, like many of you in this audience are. Huge block, huge demographic of If I handed you an old cassette tape that had been kind of jaggeded up and it was all kind of sticking out the bottom, and some of you going, what's a cassette tape? Don't worry about it and a pencil and said, fix this tape. Well, you'd know how to fix the tape. Stick it in there, start twisting it, make sure it's unwound. Hopefully it's not too screwed up and that tape will probably play again. If it's been too jacked up, it's going to get eaten. But you'd know what to do with it. How many 15-year-olds today do you think would figure out what to do with a cassette tape that's jacked up? That ain't even that long ago. Or how many of them would know how to play a 45 record if you had to put the little plastic thing in it so it'd fit on the record player, let alone play a record? I guess that's getting big with hipsters now, the old albums. But you see what I'm saying? Any tech that gets outdated and is replaced by superior technology that requires less skill from the user lowers the skill level of the individual. When I was a kid, like in grade school, Everybody that knew anything about computers knew how to do at least some basic code. Most computer users today couldn't code anything because it's not necessary anymore. So yeah, if we have this major trend in automation and self-driving autonomous vehicles, the skill set of the average human being being able to drive will decline. Absolutely. And that is most concerning in those situations that you talked about. The person has to take over for five minutes. And I think that's why we're going to see to operate a vehicle, to own a vehicle, to be responsible for a vehicle long into the future, even if your vehicle is autonomous, you're going to have to have a driver's license. Oh, and gee, isn't there another skill set that's widely lost? Parallel parking. Parallel parking. Parallel parking. When I took my test, if you couldn't parallel park, you didn't get a license. I don't even think they do it anymore in most places. Let's take another one.
3: Hi, this is Jack from North Carolina. I really like your idea of keeping gas cans numbered 1 through 12 corresponding to each month. However, I can't find a new gas can I like. All the ones I find have the safety and shut-off crap on the nozzles, which make them almost impossible to use. It's a five-gallon plastic can you recommend that is easy to use, has a decent spout length, and doesn't cost a fortune. Thanks. Appreciate your work, Jack.
0: Um, the bad news. All common gas cans today suck. The good news. You can make them unsuck. Um, back in the summer, I posted an uh, Amazon item of the day. That was a valve, uh, valve relief valve for gas cans, and basically you drill a a vent hole in your gas can and pop one of these things in, and then it's like the old gas cans where there was a vent so that when you poured it didn't go. The government or infinite wisdom has decided that that's not environmentally friendly. Uh, I would point out how much gas is spilled and and overspilled and and, and what have you because of this new better technology, right? Then the other thing that you want to do, there's different types of gas can safety nozzles. Some of them are like really a pain in the ass. Like you have to push this thing in and shove it against the tank and back push it. But then there's the other ones where there's like a little lever, And you pull the lever back and then you push down the little depressor and that opens it up and then it'll pour for you. Um, If that's the kind that you have, so that's what you want to look for, with a pair of nippers and a pair of pliers, you can pull that right the hell out of there and then there's no – it'll still close, so it stays closed. But you can just push down the release lever And you won't have to worry about pulling that little Doomahickey back and trying to do it with all kind of weird dexterity. You need to be a contortionist to work a freaking gas can. If you do this to them, they're still not perfect because the way they're designed now, it's hard to get the last couple drops out of them. But it's a hell of a big improvement. You have a gas can that works. You go up to your vehicle, you pop your little vent valve open, you push your little thing down, and you stick it in and you lift it up in a gas flows just the way that it's supposed to. There's another option, and it's a really easy option if you're not in a hurry for the fuel to get in there, and that is you get a pump bulb like you like you have for an outboard motor on a boat. Stephen Harris taught me this one. Uh so a lot of outboard motors on a boat, you know, they have a removable gas tank, and there'll be a little pump, little bulb, and you pump that till it gets hard, and what that is is it pumps gas out of the can to the motor. So that when the motor starts running and drawing, it creates a siphon and it pulls, there's no fuel pump. Well, if you get one of those in some fuel line that fits on it, and you just put it through it, and you stick it in the gas can, you put the gas can on the roof or on the back of the truck, and you put the other end of the tubing into your gas tank, and you pump it a few times, it'll start a siphon. And then you don't have to stand there at all, and it doesn't matter if your gas can sucks, and all the gas, except a little bit in the back, ends up in your tank. That's the real passive way to do it, and that is a very convenient thing. That's how I do my truck, because I have the metal military NATO jerry cans for my truck. And yeah, I got the donkey dick for it and whatnot, but you're sitting there holding a five-gallon metal can like that, lifting it up against the side of a truck. It gets old. I throw it up on the toolbox in the back of the truck, stick my Stephen Harris bulb thingy in there, bloop, 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 and once it starts running, I just go in the house. And when I come out, oh, yeah, I put fuel in it. So then, boom, that goes in the truck. That one goes to the next time I go to the store to get get diesel fuel. It gets filled back up. goes back in rotation. Now, what I said might sound complicated. There's a couple guys called Dual Survivor uh, or Double Survivor or something like that. In the write-up I did on these vent valves, they show you exactly how to do what I said. What they did, though, is they used a a valve stem for a tire uh, to uh, to to make the vent. It's okay, but the rubber eventually, gas eats the rubber. If you ever want to do something really nasty to someone, I, I can't tell you. Should I tell you this? Okay, if you pour gas on the bead of a tire, sometimes you have to do it a couple of times, eventually the bead will fail and the tire will go flat and it will never hold air again. Yeah. I know that because my dad was in the service station industry. But anyway, um, so, <laughs> I shouldn't have told y'all that. Don't, d- I know that, but I've never done it to anybody. Okay. So, um, the, the, the gas vapors will eventually eat the rubber on your little valve stem and mess it up. You'll have to replace it and, and what have you. If you use the little snap cap thingies like they used to have on them, it, it it'll fix your problem. Technically, you're not supposed to do this. I don't know anybody running around checking gas cans anywhere for stuff like this, though. So that's what I would do. Anyway, the, the, the write-up I did, the video of them doing the modification is there, and I'm just saying replace the valve stem, tire valve stem, with the proper thing that you can buy for a few bucks on Amazon. Um, there's also a meme going around now that says, "Hey, Hey, Mr. President, can you make gas cans great again? Because not that long ago, you didn't have to do all this shit. Gas cans worked just fine, and we weren't destroying the environment with them. And like I said, I think more gas is spilled because of these new safer cans than uh, than fumes were ever lost from the old ones. Uh, let's take another one.
2: Hey Jack, what are you from Virginia? Um, just reading on Zero Hedge, February seventh at ten ten p.m. Uh, it says that the uh, House Republican introduced a bill to to abolish Department of Education on the same day. D. Lewis confirmed to run it. Um, just uh, if I might be interested no no thanks
0: man so there was a lot of controversy about this Betsy DeVos chick who I don't really know that much about and don't really give a shit about to be honest because I think if Donald Trump resurrected Mother Teresa and put her in charge of the Department of Health and Human Services the Democrats would say she's Satan and a Nazi so I I don't really care either way I don't think you're going to get the true story either way Uh, Because all the Republicans say, they're wonderful. Um, Some of the supposedly bad things I heard about Betsy DeVos was that she was for getting rid of the Department of Education, um, which should be great, but I can't find anything that proves that that's true. And then the other thing is she's for school choice, and that's just terrible. And she's for charter schools, and she was never a teacher, for God's sake. She was, well, being a teacher isn't that damn hard. I'm sick of this shit. I'm sick of this shit. You, you, well, she taught sixth grade for ten years. Well, that means she should be able to get A's in seventh grade, and that's it. it, it, it this whole, like, teachers need master's degrees in this stupid crap. Homeschoolers have proven this to be bullshit. Um, she's very pro-charter school, and she's very much pro toward the voucher side of things. And I think that's all good stuff. As far as this 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 rep proposing completely dissolving the Department of Education, I don't remember his name, but his point is there's no constitutional authority for the federal government to run the school systems. He's right, but there's also nothing in the Constitution that prohibits it. There's nothing that prohibits it. And if it's not prohibited, it's it it's generally in in modern times not at the time the constitution was ratified but by the court system seen as then you can do it uh, with the exception of the infringement upon individual rights So the the Constitution doesn't have to say that the government can run a Department of Education for uh, the government to do so. You would have to prove in court that somehow your individual rights are interfered with by the government doing so, and taxes theft ain't going to get that done. Even though it might be absolutely true, it's not going to get that done in the court system. I don't think that will ever happen. Now, I'm going to entertain something. Let's say Betsy DeVos is for getting rid of the Department of Education. She actually wants to do away with it. Um, I I don't think it matters. I I think all of a sudden she'll think the Department of Education is a wonderful thing because it has a $70 billion a year annual budget, and when you hand somebody power over something with a $70 billion a year annual budget, all of a sudden, especially if they're a political type person, they fall in love with the idea. Take, for instance, someone who really was for getting rid of a department. Couldn't remember what department it was, but turned out it was a department of energy. Former governor of Texas, Rick Perry, He, he they kind of sunk his presidential campaign last time around because the, the, he they said, well, you know, would you get rid of some departments of energy in a debate? And he said, yeah. And they said, well, name three. And he forgot. He forgot department of energy. Well, all of a sudden, Donald Trump appoints this clown. Um, head of the Department of Energy, and he thinks it's a wonderful thing. He said, that was before I found out about all the amazing, wonderful things this department does. (laughs) I mean, you can't make shit like this up. I mean, Rick Perry never disappoints, and I think you get the same from Betsy DeVos. However, if she is for school choice, seriously, and they do things to empower school choice, meaning you don't have to send your kid to a failing school just because of what your address is, I think that's a good thing overall, but I don't know that she'd be able to do that much. Personally, I do think that the Department of Education should be completely gotten rid of. It's only been around since Jimmy Carter. Somehow we made it all the way up to like 1977 or 78, whatever it was, without a Department of Education. Somehow we survived without one. If we can survive in 1975 without a federal Department of Education, we can survive in 2017 without a frickin' Department of Education. But that would mean making the government actually smaller. That would take $70 billion and put it back to work for the American people in other ways. Or possibly, maybe we don't need to steal that $70 billion, but that's crazy talk. We don't really need a Department of Education. It doesn't really do anything. All it does is tell the states what to do instead of letting the states figure out what they want to do. All it does is redistribute wealth. It steals money and then gives it back. How about we just don't steal it in the first place? Then we won't need to give it back. All it is is a giant Robin Hood program to try to make all schools good and all schools equal. And it's failed miserably. There's shitty schools and there's great schools. And even the great schools suck because they're indoctrination centers. So I'd love to see it happen, but it's not going to happen. I would love to see Betsy DeVos say my mission for the next four years as head of Department of Education is to get rid of Department of Education and give all the power back to the states. Not going to happen. We'll just have to see how seduced she is by her power, how much she's willing to really do that fits with her past track record, which, again, Democrats think is horrible. Because it's awful that you would be able to take your child out of a failing school and send them to a good one because you wanted to. It's awful that you would be able to take some of the money that's being spent on your child and direct it to a a private institution and make up the difference out of your own pocket. It's awful that charter schools could actually prove that our current education model sucks. That's horrible if you're for big government. Because what big government wants is everybody's equal. Well, I'm going to just clue you in on this. Everybody's not freaking equal. Everybody's not equal. Everybody's not as good as everybody else. It's not the way it works. We might be created equal from a standpoint that it was written into our Constitution, uh, or to our Declaration of Independence, I'm sorry, from a standpoint of we're all equal as beings. But we're not all equal in talent and ability. I can't play in the NBA, and Michael Jordan would probably make a terrible freaking podcaster. I do mean the basketball player that's retired. Okay. There's some of you out there who are amazingly talented musicians. I can't carry a tune in a bucket if it was strapped to my back. That's just the way it is. Men are better at some things than women are, and women are better at some things than men are. That's sexist. No, that's freaking reality. And the entire federal model, when it comes to things like education, is designed to remove those differences, to try to make everybody equal. Say Everybody can do good in school. The current school system, no. Not everybody can do good in it because it doesn't fit everybody. It's all a bunch of bullshit. You've been sold. And it's been sold along with the concept of teacher hero worship. All teachers are amazing. All teachers are highly qualified. All teachers are heroes. No, some teachers are amazing. Some teachers are magnificent at what they do. Some teachers are heroic. And some teachers are idiots. And some teachers are stupid. And some teachers suck. And until we're willing to say that, we'll never fix anything. Whether or not you get rid of the Department of Education, as long as you keep up this facade that schools should be the same for everybody, everybody should do well in that system, and all of the people that are part of that system are miraculous miracle workers, you're going to have a screwed up, effed up system that's going to fail miserably, just like it is right now. It'll work for the ones that it's right for, and it'll fail miserably for those that it's not right for. And I don't think Betsy DeVos, this congressman, or any kind of bill anywhere is going to change that anytime soon. So take as much responsibility for the education of your children as you can. I think we got one more, and we're done for the day.
2: Hey, Jack. This is Rick from Pennsylvania. I'm calling to, uh, as kind of a two-parter, uh, the first question is I want to set up a drip irrigation system this year with my garden. And uh, I just wondered if you have any suggestions on a good system to start with or if you just kind of piece together my own, something like that, or if there's any parts that you recommend. Um, that's the first part. But the second part goes along with the garden is I have a, a part of my yard, uh, the one half of it, not half of it, probably about a third of it, is uh on one side of the sidewalk. And <clears throat> where my garden is now, it takes up about – Half of that space. I want to expand that up, but I'm probably going to be moving probably in a year and a half or so. Maybe I could get two seasons out of it. I'm just wondering if you think that'd be worth it, um you know, with resale values and, you know, when we start showing the house. Just, uh, just some thoughts on that. If it's worth expanding the garden so like a third of my yard will just be all garden. So, alright, thanks a lot.
0: Okay, on the drip irrigation, um, I'm not really familiar with drip irrigation. The only place I ever tried to do it was here. And when I tried to do it here, I, I rapidly figured out that with the hard water I have, it's not, it's not feasible. It took almost no time at all for the drippers to get clogged. However, I can give you some advice. One would be, especially in a garden environment where it's not shrubs and everything's different distances, they make irrigation lines. You can get it at Lowe's or Home Depot. It's brown. And I think there's an emitter every 18 inches in it or something like that. So they're all, it's already built in with emitters. You cut it to length. You plug it into a supply line. You crimp the end. You, you, you staple it down where you want it. And you plant next to the emitters. And that's the most cost-effective way to do it for, like, a garden environment. You want to have a filter of some sort, an inline filter to filter out debris, because that will clog your drippers as well. And I would say you want to put them on timers, and, and that makes everything easy. Um, and, and my best advice is to find a good local irrigation supply store that supply that is not Home Depot or Lowe's, because those people in there are morons. Now, I know there's some good ones, and if you work there and you're a good one, I apologize, but then you know the truth. You're surrounded by morons. The the drip irrigation line I'm talking about, I'm explaining it to a guy, and I'm looking for it in irrigation. He's the irrigation guy. He's not the guy from mattresses or some shit that's down there to handle irrigation because the, the irrigation guy's on smoke break. He's the guy. This is his department. And I'm explaining, I don't want to put these things together. I'm looking for the line that already... Oh, they don't make that anymore. They don't make it anymore. When the hell did they stop making it? Oh, some time ago. And I finally, I look right over his shoulder and I see it. And it's. I said, you mean that stuff right there? They don't make that stuff right there anymore? He goes, oh, I guess they do. You know what? I don't need any more help, man. I'll take care of this myself. And he actually looked offended. Like he didn't understand why I, was, why I didn't want to talk to him anymore. So... If you go to a place that, that's, you know, a mom and pop, you know, garden center or something that deals with irrigation supply, they can help you. You tell them, you know, draw a little sketch, uh, know what you, how much, you know, what your water flow rates and, and stuff like that are, um, and 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 go in and explain what you're trying to do, and they'll they'll fix you up. And and that's the, and then give them your business, spend a little bit more on the material because you get the knowledge to go with it. And I think that's the best way to do something like drip irrigation, at least the first time. And then once you've done that, because when I did it here, it wasn't hard. It just didn't work because of the water. I actually didn't even get any help because you saw what kind of help I found. And I, did, I didn't find anybody locally that, that was what I'm suggesting you look for. And so I just went and got some of this stuff and got the supply line and caps and a little punch tool to punch holes in it and just pieced it together. And it, it worked beautiful for a week. And then it just stopped. So it, it's not hard. Okay, now the expansion of the garden, taking up over half the yard. Now, in general, if you're only going to be there two more years, I would say don't do it. I've put gardens in in every property that I've ever had. They've always helped the, the, the house sell faster. And I've had rural housing and I've had suburban housing. This sounds kind of suburban-esque. So here's my rules for suburban gardens. They should, one, look pretty. Two, be easily converted to flowers and shit like that if that's what the new homeowner wants. Uh, number three, be planted and mulched when a house is is being sold, uh, shown for sale, or if it's a time of the year where it's too cold to grow anything, they should be well weeded, lay down weed block, or even if you don't use it, and mulch it with deep, nice, fresh wood mulch. So the person sees a blank slate and realizes it's all there and ready to go. The reason I'm suggesting maybe you don't expand it is because it's very easy for people to to think to myself, oh, I can plant posies in there or whatever they want. It's a little harder for people to see, you know what, if I don't like that, I can just yank it out. So if you do put something in and you take up that space, I would do it in a way that it's very easy to remove. You know, so that if the because if the person showing your house is a decent agent, and even if it's not your agent, if it's the if it's a buyer's broker and they're there and they go, Well, I really don't like gardens, they're gonna say, Well, Tim, Tammy, if you don't like gardens, that would take like fifteen minutes to just take all that stuff down and spread the dirt out and throw down some grass. So if you don't want a garden, that's not a reason to buy not buy this house. But if it's done with, you know, heavy, you know, s- masoned in stone or something like that and it's not like the typical landscaping around the house, you know, like on the edges and stuff, then it's a little bit more difficult for people to understand that it could go away, and it's a little more work to make it go away, and they don't want it. So I would always do anything you do to a house with their mindset on if I have to sell this place, especially the more suburban you get, the more you have to think that way. So I'm not going to say don't do it, but I'm gonna say it may not be worth it to you for the short duration. And if you do, make it look pretty and think about it as a flower garden that's growing vegetables. Because the person that moves in to grow vegetables and wants to grow vegetables will go, "Oh, that's great, I can grow them there." But the flower power person will say, "Oh, I can just you know put rhododendron or whatever you know ornamental crap they want to put in there, hollyhock, I, I don't know." Right? So think about that. But the the reason you know taking up the whole yard almost. You know, people want a place for the kid to run around and stuff like that. So a little patch of green is, is usually a good thing to to be seen, I guess, when you want to think about marketing that house. Anyway, hope you guys enjoyed today's show. If you did, uh, one of the ways you can help support us is by doing your Amazon shopping through tspaz.com. Just go to the survival, or go, you can go to survivalpodcast.com and click on tspaz or just go to tspaz.com and there's a link there. You click it, you go to Amazon, you buy your stuff, you support our show, it doesn't cost you anything. I mean, it's a really easy way to support the work that we do here at the Survival Podcast. And uh, I do have an item up for review most days. Today is an encore item. Um, It is Dr. Christopher's uh, Complete Tissue and Bone Ointment, and it's, it's an encore item for two reasons. One, I'll admit, I was running behind today, and I got a lot of stuff to do this afternoon that I have to leave the property for, and so... I, I didn't really have time to do a write-up on a new product. But it's also uh, an encore because I've heard from so many people who have used it and are so happy with it. And I know I get new people all the time that may have not heard of it from me before, and I want you to know about this. It's basically an ointment that's made with a lot of different herbs. But the primary herb in it is comfrey. And scrapes, abrasions, uh, shallow cuts, things like that. Comfrey is just amazing in its ability to to heal them. Uh, ant bites, the stuff is dynamite on, on making ant bites go away, especially the faster you get it on after you get bit, the better. Uh, and also any kind of uh, deep tissue damage. Uh, many people who have been listening to the show know for a, a long time know I use this stuff like crazy uh, on my knee when I injured my knee last spring, a- and I credit it for helping me heal to a point where I did not need surgery because uh, had I listened to doctors at the time, I guarantee you they would have wanted to do, um, surgery on both the MCL and LCL and meniscus of that knee. And I'm not going to say my knee's is 100%, but it's 95. It's, I'll tell you what it is. It's 100% of what it was before it got hurt because I have knee issues, uh, from jumping out of airplanes and stuff like that anyway in both knees. Uh, but I have no pain in it or problems with it. And I did recently have some aching in that knee and I, I picked up some more of this stuff and, uh, you know, put it on where it aches and it just, It doesn't only help the body heal, it also is very much a pain reliever. And I don't care what the government says, I think the use of comfrey is by and large safe anyway unless you do stupid shit. And certainly the topical use of it is safe. One warning I have with this or any other comfrey uh, product, do not use it on deep wounds. And the reason you don't do it on deep wounds is it can actually heal the surface of the wound and trap infection below the surface. So it's for abrasions, scrapes, shallow cuts, and things like that. Uh, burns. It's it's fantastic. But anything is a deep, a deep cut. You know, something deep where the top being covered over and healing too fast can be a problem. You don't use coffee because that's how powerful it is. It, it really does a great job. So teaspas.com for all your Amazon shopping. Doctor Christopher's complete tissue and bone ointment for aches, pains, sprains, things like that. Read the write up and you'll 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 find out all about it. Anyway, with that we get to the song of the day, and boy, this is a change of pace. Um, this this song is a uh, very much country western song, which yesterday's was, but kind of like a happy go lucky musical, uh, the winds and the plains in Oklahoma musical type stuff or something with buttons and bows and what have you. Um, Today is Riders in the Sky by Von Monroe, and also known as Ghost Riders in the Sky. And it's kind of the precursor to a lot of stuff that you'll hear in country music in the future, even though it's really not a country song. It's a cowboy legend. Um, And it's it's kind of dark. And it's almost like all this kind of happy-go-lucky music, like, the the people started to crave at least something a little bit more, Ugh. you know. When you hear this song, if you've never heard it before, you'll be like, "Ah, oh, I, I see what you're saying." It's also the case that westerns have been big in America for a long time. At this point, they were part of the the silent films and everything, but the heyday of American Western movies and TV and stuff like that has got to be the 50s and 60s, and we're sitting here in 1949 on the cusp of that. And I think that's part of the direction that society's moving toward. You know, the war is won. We're not even thinking about a little place called Korea yet. Uh, people are, are working their factory jobs. Men that went to war are getting college educations with the GI Bill and getting professional jobs. Um, housewives are generally still in the home and not working, but there's a lot of women that have begun to work now because they went to work for the war effort, and when their husband came home, they they kind of liked having their own money and that type of thing. Uh, a lot of more moving toward the suburbs, and there's this again, like I said yesterday, this, this nostalgic look at you know traditional America and the cowboys and stuff like that. I think it's another reason this song might have been number one in 1949. Again, Riders in the Sky, Vaughn Monroe. With that, this has been Jack Spirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
5: And old cowpoke went riding out one dark and windy day. Upon a ridge he rested as he went along his way. When all at once a mighty herd of red-eyed cows he saw A-plowing through the ragged skies And up a cloudy draw A ghost heard in the sky Their hands were still on fire and their hooves were made of steel. Their horns were black and shiny and their hot breath he could feel. A bowl of fear went through him as they thundered through the sky. For he saw the riders coming home and he heard their mournful cry. in the sky. Their faces gaunt, gone, their eyes were blurred and shirts all soaked with sweat. They're riding hard to catch that herd, but they ain't caught them yet cause they've got to ride forever on that range up in the sky. On horses snorting fire as they ride on hear their cry. I I.O. Riders loped on by him, he heard one call his name. If you want to save your soul from hell a-riding on our reins, then cowboy, change your ways today, or with us you will ride a-trying to catch the devil's herd across these endless skies. A